you were about to tell me about your affair with sewing. Oh, no, that was just awful and sordid. I (laughs) I went through this stage. (laughs) So I was going to make all of my own clothing and all I could make were squares and rectangles. So I had this strappy dress that was just a big rectangle with a hole in it. And the straps kept falling off. I would wear it over a T-shirt until the day when I'm waiting for the bus and the bus comes and I stand up and the whole thing just falls to my ankles. Oh, no. Thank God I had the T-shirt on. If you knit or sew, you've probably experienced something like this, an epic fabric fail. It's humiliating, but that's besides the point. What is the point is that we tend to remember failures rather than successes. You might proudly show off the sweater you knit or the dress you sewed, but what you'll talk about are the seven times you had to redo it because you couldn't fit it over your head. But today, I want to talk about success and not the kind where your quilt wins a prize or you design your first garment. I want to talk about when making and using cloth is not only successful, but downright revolutionary. When textiles or cloth or or even string become a slingshot that propels the human race forward, making it possible to go places we never even imagined. Today, we're traveling through 40,000 years of textile history, From Neanderthal caves to Egyptian pyramids, from Viking ships to spaceships, none of these journeys would have happened without someone in the background spinning, weaving, or sewing. You're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. And I'm your host, Alison Korleski. Hey, Hannah. How's it going? Hey, Allison. I'm good. How are you? I'm just ducky. I am (laughs) sitting in my closet. Are you? Yep, I am in my closet. Even epic journeys begin with a small step. I needed a friend to help me with this exploration, so I'm joined today by Hannah Baker, my colleague and fellow fiber geek. I'm Hannah Baker, and I am the editor of Interweave Knits Magazine, and I'm also the host of a new podcast called The Knitting Nerdcast. Which is a podcast I like very much. Oh, thanks. On the Knitting Nerdcast, Hannah doesn't shy away from rabbit holes. Hannah is also an anthropologist, or she studied anthropology in college. And she is also, like me, obsessed with the world of knitting and textile history. Though we arrived here via very different paths. So, Hannah, how did you get into this weird world that we inhabit? (laughs) Well, I think I was a sophomore in high school and I was I can see it in my brain. I'm walking down B Hall <laughs> and um, I see two of my classmates. I think it was after school. I see two of my classmates, Whitney and Sophie, and they're sitting on the floor on the carpet with their backs against the lockers and they're doing something. And I was like, hey, nerds, what are you <laughs> what are you guys doing? And they're like, we're knitting. And I was like, oh, my God, can you teach me? And they just showed me right then and there how to do it. And I think. From then on, I was like absolutely obsessed with it. How did you get into this crazy world? I was a lot older when I came to this. I was actually, I worked in New York at the time and I had cut out of work early and gone to the uh, Met Museum to check out. I don't even remember what the exhibit was. And at some point in time, I found myself in the ancient Egyptian section. Ooh. Um, I just needed to find a bathroom. (laughs) Fair. That is the, They're hard to come by in that city. It was the only reason that I was there. So I'm wandering around and I see that that glowing icon and there's this cabinet by the bathroom. And you know in museums that the, the important stuff is always sort of front and center mm-hmm. and the crowds are around it. And then they have stuff that it's like, we don't know what to do with this. So we're just going to put it in the cabinet and <laughs> shove it in the corner somewhere. Yeah. 
While I was waiting there, in line, for the bathroom, I noticed it held a crinkled-looking ball of yarn attached to a stick. And when I read the little placard, I realized that I was looking at someone's spinning project from 1200 BC. Unlike my sewing disaster, this ball of yarn was so well made it had survived over 3,000 years. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that 3,000-year-old ball of yarn would change my life. As I waited in line, I kept staring at it. How had it survived? Why was it so important to someone that they literally took it to their grave? That is so interesting. That was your first dive into knitting. That was your first exposure to knitting. But I'd seen people doing it. You know, I had admired it, but always from afar, I hadn't really had an interest. It was that museum trip, Mm. you know, when I saw this stuff and how long it had survived. And I became, I guess I became fascinated as a thing, as a history. Sure, yeah. um, As it had something to say. I mean, you know, it wasn't just here's, here's something pretty to wear or here's something functional to use. It was that has a story. Mm -hmm. That has a history. How many hands have handled that piece of cloth? And that's kind of where I went off on my thing. Yeah. I got really excited in college when when textile anthropology would come up. And for a time, I really wanted to do that, you know, travel the world and look at all the different textiles and the stories and people surrounding them all over the place. Uh, My big dream is to go to New Zealand to meet all the sheep. Oh, yeah. Okay, you can't travel now. Well, none of us can travel now with everything that's going on. Do you travel virtually? I mean, I I find that I read everything that I can get my hands on. I'm online mm-hmm. a lot. I'm on books a lot. I'm reading magazine articles a lot. Like just anything that gets me to that place that I want to go. Lately, I've been binging on Cassia St. Clair. My name is Cassia St. Clair, and I'm the author of The Golden Thread, How Fabric Changed History. And I'm also the author of The Secret Lives of Color. You might remember Cassia from our episode about color and dyes. Cassia is a cultural historian and fellow fiber obsessive. Her book, The Golden Thread, How Fabric Changed History, is another collection of essays, this time all about textiles. I gobbled it up and I recommend it to everyone listening. But not everyone shares our fiber geek enthusiasm. I would quite often sort of say, well, my next book is going to be about textiles. And people's eyes would just kind of glaze over. (laughs) Fiber, fabric is integral to human history, but get short shrift. Wars and plagues and art and science, they're the exciting stuff. Linen bedsheets are not. Also made me, I guess, quite annoyed because I knew that fabric was fascinating. I knew that there were so many stories that were worth telling. And I knew that textiles had pushed forward um, so much of human history. Her whole thesis, if you will, is where would we be today without fabric? I'm Okay, I'm sitting in my closet. Me too. And I've got, you know, all of my dresses are kind of draped over my head right now. <laughs> but I'm looking at my bed. I'm looking at my carpet. I'm looking mm-hmm. at the stuffed llama. I'm looking at the socks I'm wearing. I've got, you know, pillows around me. Like, I am so padded and swaddled right now. And, yeah. and most of us are. Yeah. And yet we completely just gloss over it. That stuff, you know, that we see every day, that we touch every day, that that completely surrounds us, we don't think about it. Yeah. And if we do, it's to dismiss it. We totally take so it for I, granted. Mm-hmm. And I get a little bit of a chip on my shoulder 
that I feel that we have to constantly explain ourselves and mm. be like, no, no, really, this stuff is worthy. This stuff is worthy of interest. It's worthy of your time. And it matters because, you know, fabric is one of the reasons that we were able to emerge from the cave. Mm. You know, fabric is one of the reasons why we could sail boats and go explore and find new worlds. Um, fabric is why we could fly the first planes because that's what mm. their wings were made out of. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, all of these things. And people don't think about it yeah. that way. In some ways, Cassia's book is a feminist manifesto for craft. We think of invention, exploration, discovery, all as things based in the hard sciences of engineering and physics. We think of cloth and textiles as in the softer, homier, more domestic sphere. Yeah, I think that's sort of a, a funny dynamic when you think of those stereotypically masculine subjects or stereotypically masculine adventures. And this came up a few times in the book. So thinking of of warships like the Viking warships, thinking of, of space exploration, um, which I talk about later in the book, you tend to think of very hard surfaces, hard objects, and that is pushed back into archaeology when you talk about things like the iron in the Stone Age. But so much of that engineering and exploration would never have happened if it weren't for the right cloth or fiber hanging behind it in the shadows. Not only do you have clothes, like the clothes that would have been completely necessary on Viking ships in order to keep um, uh, the, the traders and, and the warriors and the, and the farmers warm, um, but you know you have ropes and sails and um, nets. All these things um, were essential tools but there's just something about our idea of what is um, important and vital that doesn't seem to leave much room for things that are soft um, and and that <laughs> is a great shame um, when when you think of when you when you're considering textiles because think about this for a second okay wars have been fought over wool and silk helped establish trade routes that went halfway around the world Cotton enslaved millions, and linen has clothed living and dead alike for millennia. I mean, so much of human history just would not have been possible if if it weren't for the right outfit. Oh, my God. It's crazy to think about. I have a question for you, okay. misanthropologist, ah. because this was the thing that I read that blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, we think of cavemen, you know, the stereotypical caveman Fred Flintstone wearing like a tiger skin or something. <laughs> when do you think people actually started wearing cloth that's such a good question do you have any idea because this blew my mind um oh you have the answer and you're quizzing me well maybe a little bit no i like it i wish i reviewed my my college notes when did humans start wearing cloth let's see animal domestication was what like 10k years ago something like that ish go back i don't know i'm just gonna throw out a rough guess and say like twenty five thousand years 34 34,000 years ago yeah wow yeah and and here's the other thing it wasn't wool it was linen here's cassia again some microscopic portions of linen fiber were discovered in a cave in the soil of a cave in georgia in in eastern europe that have um, are so far are the oldest man-made textile remnants that we know about there they're over thirty thousand years old and they were found completely accidentally people weren't looking for them at all they didn't expect to find you know textile remnants from from that period in fact the the scientist who discovered them was actually a, a paleobotanist 
She was looking through samples of soil in order to see what pollen might be present, because that would give her clues about the temperature and, and, and you know, very, various environmental factors. And instead, when she looked into her microscope, much to her surprise, she saw these minute um, twists um, remnants of flax fibre and the more they looked the more they found um, they found hundreds of these tiny um, flax remnants um, some of which appeared to have been twisted together in relatively complex ways and many of them were dyed a, a vast array of colours blacks, browns, greys, blues there was even a, a, a pink um, fibre that was discovered. So it, it really was a phenomenal um, discovery and pushed back the earliest traces of man-made fibre that we know about, pushed it back um, about 8,000 years. The oldest human artefacts we know about are stone tools, over 3 million years old. Needless to say, cloth came a lot later. But I'll make the argument that hitting a rock with another rock doesn't come close to the technology and craft you needed to make the cloth found in that cave. Have you ever seen linen being made? Oh my God, it's exhausting. I would love to see that. I need to just so, YouTube it. So you, so you have to like cut these woody sticks. You've got to soak them in water to soften them up, like kind of rot them. Yeah. You got to beat them. Oh my God. Then you have to like run them through these pointy spiky things okay. to pull all of the woody bits off. Mm-hmm. Then you have to whack it some more. <laughs> And you keep doing that, you end up with something that looks like horsehair. Wow. And then you have to invent spinning right. in order to make it. So I don't know why the people who made this didn't just look at a sheep and say, boy, that looks easier. Something that I was very surprised by, again, possibly because I'm I'm British. In Britain, we have a very long history and, and a prominent history of wool production. I sort of assumed that the earliest fibres that human beings would have used were likely to be, you know, wool or, or animal fibre. But in fact, um, almost all the earliest fibres have been made from flax plants. So they're linen, um, essentially. We have a lot of ancient linen. If you go to Egypt, there's like acres and acres of this stuff Mm -hmm. in the tombs. Wow. Like I'm researching and I'm finding like the oldest dress in the world is linen. And it was found in Egypt. And it looks like something you would buy from GarnetHill.com. Oh, my God. I want to see this. But when we think about linen or we think about Egypt, we don't think about dresses. We don't think about string. We think about mummies. And I'd always thought of mummy bandages as being a a kind of bubble wrap, like they just protected the body on its way to the afterlife. And I was wrong. The linen wrappings, they didn't protect a body, they transformed it. The available evidence suggests that it was the application of layers of linen, cloth and bandages that transfigured a, a corpse, you know, a dead human body from just that into something worthy of veneration. Care was was placed in the exact method with which the, the bindings and, and the wrappings were applied. It, it's very difficult to exactly know in, in what way they would have thought about it. But all the evidence seems to suggest that the linens were absolutely intrinsic to the transformation of the body to something more in the afterlife. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is a concept. Yeah. That that one, I kind of felt the hairs kind of prickle on the back of my neck as yeah. I started thinking about that. I kind of did too. 
So the the whole mummy thing aside is that fabric, it's fiber, it's cloth, it's textiles that takes us from one place to another, and not just geographically, but in many ways to a better place. You know, one of the things that she brought up that I hadn't thought about is, you know, the Vikings, like when they were first doing their Viking thing, they didn't have sails. Vikings, those infamous warriors of the North, would never have become Vikings if it weren't for woolen sails. The earliest boats they had were small and round and paddled, neither efficient nor terribly intimidating. You just don't hear of large-scale canoe raids in Northern Europe. The Vikings used wool to an astonishing degree of expertise to make sails um, and sailcloth, which is something that absolutely <laughs> blew me away um, when I first heard it because I, I'm not much of a, a sailor. My husband is. But it seems very strange to me that something that makes jumpers could be used to make sails that were in any way useful. Finally, we get to wool. Sheep were domesticated around 10,000 years ago. And we think wool came into regular use maybe 6,000 years ago, in all the ways you might think. Clothing, shelter, household goods. But I was really surprised when Cassia told me that one of wool's most innovative and world-changing applications was not on land, but at sea. As far as we can tell, sails sailed into Scandinavia in the 6th or 7th centuries, and those sails transformed the culture. In fact, the land needed to raise the sheep that made the sails? That might have been one of the reasons behind the Viking expansion over the next several hundred years. But wool also served the Vikings in more traditional ways. While we think of Vikings as being these leather-wearing, rape-and-pillage raiders straight out of the Netflix series, they got cold like any other human. The lanolin-rich wool leggings, tunics, cloaks, and mittens that Vikings wore were water-resistant as well as warm. For protection against the elements, these manly men needed wool. Oh, man. That's super interesting. So many different, like, contexts. And this kind of reminds me of something that you mentioned briefly earlier that I've been waiting for you to bring back up about space travel. How does she oh. how does she bring space travel into all this? Next up after the break, we go on an out of this world trip into the far reaches of space where survival depends upon some 4000 pieces of cloth, otherwise known as a spacesuit. Minus 10, 9, 8. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1. Zero. You know, when we think about space travel and we think about we think about all of like the hard techie stuff. So you've got, you know, rocket ships and they're really complicated and you have, you know, big things of fuel that can blow up at any moment. And you've got lots of mathematicians doing mathy things on giant whiteboards <laughs> and that gets you into space and that gets you out of space. Mm -hmm. But while you're in space, you got to have the right outfit. Yes. Okay, I just checked, uh, getting back up to that first step, uh, it's, uh, that even collapsed too far, but uh, it's adequate to get back up. Roger, we copy. Pretty good little jump. Surface is fine and powdery. I can, I can kick it up loosely with my toe. It does adhere to, 
into fine layers, uh, like uh, powdered charcoal, to the uh, to the sole and sides of my boots. It's a place where we're not supposed to be. You know, you've got to deal with G-forces, for example. You've also got the fact that when you're going to be in space, you're going to have um, depleted oxygen levels or you're going to be existing in a vacuum. Um, so you're going to need to be provided oxygen and you're going to need some form of compression around your body or sort of a, a suit that um, encloses the body completely. You then also need to deal with extremes of temperature. So if you're on the light side of the moon, you know, it'll be really quite hot. Um, if you're on the, the dark side of the moon, temperatures will absolutely plummet. Um, you've also got radiation from the sun and the threat of micro uh, meteorites that could bang into you at very high <laughs> speeds and damage your, your suit or your helmet. So she was talking a lot about the moonwalk or uh, the flight to the moon, hmm. Apollo 11, mm -hmm. and how many years it took to build these spacesuits and just how much had to go into them. They were 26 layers. Oh, my God. And they kind of hmm. went like the closer to the skin, they were soft and kind of bendy. And the more you got outward, they got harder and more protective. And these things took hours to put on to put on to put on yeah absolutely so um you know on the morning of um the departure of the apollo 11 the astronauts were getting were being dressed they didn't dress themselves they were being dressed you know from about three o'clock in the morning this process began because everything needed to be checked and, and double checked layer upon layer a kind of almost alphabet soup of synthetics many of which we're sort of familiar with from other contexts, um, you know, Teflon, Kevlar, all these layers that perform various different functions and that protect the body in space. Once in space, the astronauts had to dress themselves in the suits they used to walk on the moon. And it wasn't easy. You know, when they were getting dressed in the sort of the final approach just before walking on the moon, there was so little space that they um, they described it as, as being a bit like two fullbacks trying to get changed in a, a Cub Scout tent. The suits are so complicated and cumbersome because essentially spacesuits are mini one-person spaceships. It's got to provide everything. But at the same time, astronauts often describe having a real love-hate relationship with them, particularly when they're, they're pressurized. It becomes incredibly difficult even to close a fist or to move your arm because you're always working against this incredible tension produced by wearing 26 layers of different fabrics. And keep in mind, you're wearing the suit for weeks. Yeah, that's true. So after being in the same suit for a week, I mean, it was vile. Right. Because you couldn't bathe. Yeah. And then, I mean, my first question for her, and I'm not proud, but it was, how do you pee in space? Yeah. I mean, I was just going to ask that too. So that was, that was the first thing. Yeah. So they tried diapers. Okay. And a diaper is fine for short term. <laughs> But think about it. Like if you have a child in a diaper, you need to change you that change child that or they're going to get a horrible rash. Yeah. So they spend a lot of time trying to figure out, okay, astronauts must not poop. <laughs> so they would take all of this anti-diarrhea medicine. Oh, no. But they still had to pee. Yeah. Something that I found 
absolutely hilarious sort of a little known fact about astronauts is that one of the pieces of kit needed for male astronauts in order to go to the loo is sort of a kind of bag that is fitted over their genitalia and initially you know as you might expect the sizes were small medium and large but they very soon <laughs> discovered it was very difficult to get people to fess up to needing a small um, and so they altered the sizing um, or they kept the sizing the same but they altered the name of the sizing instead of calling them small medium and large they called them large extra large and extra extra large <laughs> such, oh. is the, such is the fragility of the male ego even in space is there a different setup for women because a lot of the technicians who were involved in thinking up these waste solutions for men when female astronauts started being accepted there were various ill-conceived ideas floating around like sort of suction pants and I think eventually some female astronauts just said, look, we're just fine with diapers. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, no suction pants. Thank you. <laughs> the other thing that I thought was really cool about this, and again, I think elevated something, you know, that is just that is so prosaic and, and we make jokes about it. But spacesuits would not exist if it weren't for Playtex girdles and the Playtex girdle factory. Okay. Tell me more. Well, you know, think about it. You need your suit has to be hermetically sealed. Okay. Latex is what you need mm -hmm. for those seals. So you had a whole team of ladies who, you know, they were on the assembly line every day. And, you know, they knew how to make girdles that were basically going to stand up to a lot of extremes. Mm -hmm. And they got drafted into the NASA program. Mm, okay. So it was kind of like hidden figures just on the underwear side of things. There you, like, yeah, you need and, math and underwear to successfully navigate space. And latex garments in space have very special requirements and need special expertise. Not only you, as a, as a seamstress, having to work with 21 layers to NASA specifications, you know, that will enable people to survive in space. But of course, you have to do this without making holes, particularly in the vital latex layers, as you say, you you need for them to be completely sealed. And so pins were very tightly rationed on the sewing floors. Um, so various layers were sewed together. Other layers were glued together where you simply couldn't make holes in, in the latex layers so that they'd be glued together instead. But it's very difficult to put layers together very precisely without pinning them. And it, at the beginning, when they first started working on the Apollo 11 spacesuits, they, the seamstresses were allowed pins until one of the test suits was found to have a rogue pin between two different layers of fabric and thereafter pins were sort of very tightly rationed and in an effort to ensure that no rogue pins were actually getting sent out in suits x-ray machines were installed on the sewing floor so that every layer of textile in the production of the suits would be passed through the x-ray machine just to ensure no pins had gotten loose in the Apollo 11 spacesuits. I joke about, you know, girdles and, and things like that, but these were marvels of engineering. Mm -hmm. um, they cost something like, like up to $250,000 a piece. Oh my God. But I love the fact that we wouldn't have spacesuits if we didn't have girdles first. Yeah, man. So I'm going to look at those spanks in a whole new light now. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha.
I joke about mathy bits and engineering bits, but there was a huge amount of math Mm -hmm. and a huge amount of engineering and a huge amount of structural engineering Mm -hmm. to make sure that these suits were what stood behind between the astronauts and the void. Yeah. You know, this this book and I keep going on and on about this book, but there was there is so much in this book because she really tries to span the globe and roughly thirty four to fifty thousand years of history and we just i i pleaded with ron my producer like let me fit this in let me fit this in let me fit this in and he's a lot more disciplined than i am um (laughs) so he was like you gotta you gotta kill some of the darlings but i would love to ask our audience what weird fiber questions do you have you know about the history of fiber about the science of fiber like let's throw it out to our listeners yeah email us at fiber, I don't even know what our email is. <laughs> this I probably should have looked up. Is it Fiber Nation at Golden Peak Media? <laughs> I love it. I'm not sure if it was being cooped up at home for so long, but it's pretty clear I lost my mind a little there. So the email address is fibernation at goldenpeakmedia.com. And yes, we did include it in the show notes. Please, please, please email us with your weird fiber history questions. And if you have weird fiber facts that you want to share, email us those too. Hannah, thanks. Thank you, Allison. This has been really fun. And please, I would love to borrow a copy of Cassia's book. I will will disinfect my copy and leave it on your porch. Thank you. You're the best. All right. All right. Take care, Hannah. You too. Fabric may surround us everywhere we go, but we are largely oblivious to it. Tell someone you like their shirt, and more than half the time they have to look down to remember what it is. But fabric is the first thing to swaddle us when we leave the womb. We measure our lives by what we wear, whether it's the outfit we pick for the first day of school, a wedding dress, or a funeral suit. I initially and somewhat jokingly titled this episode, 50,000 Years of History in 30 Minutes. But really, it's just a set of bookends for that time span. What I wanted to do in this episode is not so much give you a history of textiles as an appreciation for them, for the possibilities they contain and the places they might lead us. Because cloth is never just cloth. Cloth is survival, culture, and possibility, whether it's prehistoric string tying furs onto our naked bodies or technical marvels that let us walk on the moon. And is the apotheosis of cloth those voyages into space today? Or did it happen 4,000 years ago, when mummies were wrapped for their journey into death and whatever lies beyond? The next time you get dressed, look at that microcosm of history in your closet. Think about where it came from and where it might take you, given the chance. Oh, and be sure to email us your questions. Thanks so much for listening to Fiber Nation. You can find more information about today's episode on our show notes page. Just look for the link in the episode description. If you haven't already subscribed, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you like what you hear, please take time to rate us and leave a review. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski, and Ron Doyle. Ron edited and mixed this episode. Our special guest, Hannah Baker, is the host of the Knitting Nerdcast, and our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.